Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey the Tea Leaves Reader Nockreiner. He didn't say Nostradamus for the first time ever. I knew, I knew, it literally came into my head. I saw the gears ticking. Yes, and but I was like, <laughs> fart, I can't say that, Mark. We'll make a point of mentioning it. And he does it anyway. As you might be guessing... Today is our episode where we get to chat about our 2022 cybersecurity predictions. And because this is a bit of a doozy for time's sake, let's go ahead and uh, TikTok our way in. Does that mean we have to do some weird dance on video? I hate that they've actually butchered just the... Yeah, I feel gross. <laughs> let's learn a new Fortnite dance. Oh, goodness. So it is that time of year again. It's been, oh crap, it's been a few weeks since we've had an episode thanks to the uh, Thanksgiving holiday, but we're back at it now. And to round out the year, it is time to chat about our 2022 cybersecurity predictions. And I guess, Corey, you want to give a little background on why we do these predictions, what they are, and why they always seem to turn out so dang dystopian? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I will say, if you've heard our predictions before, this none of this comes as new news to you. But just note that the predictions are more and a fun excuse to talk about the trends. You know, every year, every organization in the world at the end of the year starts predicting whatever in their industry. I know for some po- folks that kind of gets tiresome. But, but the reason we do it is, one, we think it's kind of fun to imagine the future, especially because we're security nerds. And two, we like to imagine the worst case possibility because the whole point of this is to warn against what a worst case world could be so that everyone can enact new defense strategies that avoid our predictions from coming true. But having said that, the specific predictions, in order to have fun with it, in order to imagine these worst cases, uh, we get pretty specific on our predictions. Sometimes we predict some pretty uh, interesting things. But realize whether or not our predictions hit is not important. The real reason we're doing these predictions is the underlying trends that we use, the things that we describe to you for why we're making a prediction, those are real and those are measured and those those are quantifiable things we've seen to some extent throughout the year and we're essentially uh, essentially extrapolating that to worst case scenarios. So the main thing from a practical standpoint, besides just being fun, hopefully this would be a fun podcast for you, uh, hopefully it's just to think about the trends even more so than the predictions because the trends will hit no matter how much our predictions hit. And if you listen to the last uh, live episode, you know we only got like a D plus last year. <laughs> I think it was a D minus. D plus might be a little generous on that one. Oh, bummer. That's what I told my mom. <laughs> it was it was easier to add a little uh, a horizontal line, or I should say vertical line, than it, to change it to a plus than it was to horizontal get horizontal line a. to turn into a plus. No wonder you uh, got a D minus. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't smart enough to turn the D to an A. <laughs> um, so. I guess like for time's sake, uh, first off, before we jump into the predictions, actually, if you haven't already checked them out, you can go to watchguard.com slash predictions and we put out videos to go along with each one as well. And again, in the spirit of fun, you'll see we did a nice little comic twist, comedic twist to these videos, too. So be sure to check them out. 
But let's go ahead and start with our first prediction, which is titled State-Sponsored Mobile Threats Trickle Down to the Criminal Underground. And Corey, do you want to take this one? Yeah. So first, let's talk with mobile. Let, let's start with mobile threats. Let's unpack this bit by bit. I think you all know mobile malware exists. You know, we've talked about occasional things like uh, Android malware from sideloading things from unsanctioned stores, Trojans, things like that. Recently, there's been some state-sponsored, and by that I mean maybe it wasn't a uh, government that wrote the particular malware we're going to talk about, but it's certainly government customers that encourages this company to write this malware that has come out. But long story short, mobile malware exists, everyone knows that, but it's still not really hitting a huge amount of volume. It's still much, much less than the traditional malware we see running on traditional desktop and laptop devices, whether Mac or PC. I would say maybe this is not technically true by volume, but I, I, I almost would expect a little more Mac malware than I would mobile malware. But it does exist, hasn't blown up in volume. But what we do see happening is mobile malware is a big target of customers, uh, or I'm sorry, of, of, of nations, uh, governments state-sponsored people, uh, state-sponsored organizations. They have reasons, whether they're an autocracy trying to, you know... Crush uh, dissenters. Exactly. Crush dissenters, go after political activists, anti-regime activists, their own citizens, so that they can, can crush the dissent of wanting to actually have a democracy. They have reason to want to target phones. And uh, really, a lot of this prediction is based on all throughout this year, you've probably seen a lot about the Pegasus malware uh, organization, a legitimate company in Israel uh, that actually had funding all over the world called the NSO Group, wrote what they call spyware. They, they will position this is spyware for good guys, uh, and they position that they only sell it to friendly governments that aren't uh, evil autocracies. And yet, this malware, as I will call it, got on many devices, is bought for millions of dollars by Gulf states and, and many states that I would call maybe not perfectly democratic, and have been used to spy on uh, political enemies, journalists, anti-regime activists, and so on. And this NSO group, they are like government-level sophisticated researchers. They're getting paid millions of dollars by governments. Governments tend to be their main customer, in my opinion. And they're finding previously unknown flaws in things like iOS. In order to deliver their malware, you have to get past tons of protections, especially if you're targeting iOS devices. Not that Android's less secure, but this is pretty advanced stuff, which is why we call it state-sponsored mobile malware. Uh, by the way, even though they call it spyware when this is on your system, it can monitor every text you send, it can track every single call and record it, it knows where you are in the world, and it steals your passwords. Sounds a lot like malware to me, guys. I don't know if we should consider NSO Group that legitimate. But obviously, that's the state-sponsored mobile malware we're talking about. The trickle-down is just us extrapolating things we've seen in the past. The most obvious example of this is you all remember Stuxnet. Stuxnet was a traditional threat. It attacked Windows computers, but also a novel threat in that it, it infected pro pro programmable logic controllers, or PLCs too. But it was a super advanced piece of malware, obviously written by a government. Very likely, most experts agree it was a, a operation done by the US government in Israel that was used in a state-sponsored attack. 
uh, whether or not you think using Stuxnet was right, what happens is as soon as a researcher, as soon as the state-sponsored stuff leaks to the world, researchers analyze it, they learn from it, they figured out that Stuxnet was using 4.0 day, they knew the exact new, for instance, shortcut vulnerability it used to bypass air gaps, and they publish all that because they're researchers. And that's what trickles it down to the criminal underground. Weeks after Stuxnet was analyzed, criminal botnet started leveraging some of the zero day that it used. And so really, essentially, our prediction is because of things like Pegasus from the NSO group, that stuff is starting to leak to researchers. It's going to get into the hands, the techniques, the tools, the, the more advanced procedures that these, these quote unquote good guys are using to infect phones that are pretty hardened are now in the hands of criminals or, or at least hints of them are in hands of criminals. And that's going to cause a lot more malware and a lot more dangerous malware from criminals. So that's the gist of it. All right. So what does that mean for the everyday person then? Or at least like someone trying to protect their organization from a Stuxnet level series of exploits wow. targeting their employees. <laughs> Stuxnet level is always hard, but let's say, I mean, the practical okay, Maybe Stuxnet trickle down to the to the plebs. <laughs> yeah. What 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 it essentially means is despite the fact that we don't see huge volume of mobile malware, we expect more. So you really should take your smartphone and your mobile security strategy more seriously and consider some some security controls. Uh, some examples are there are now security programs you can run directly on your mobile device. They don't work the same as normal endpoint anti-malware, but they have a number of things that make sure you don't go to bad links, that do make sure you only download whitelisted APKs or whitelisted code. So that's one option. Uh, another option is if you have corporate sanction, you know, once that your company phones that your company gives to folks, you should invest in some sort of centrally managed mobile policy solution. There's all kinds of, I, I hate having to share so many acronyms. There's all kinds of analyst acronyms for what these packages are. MDM stands for mobile device management. That has evolved into something called EMM, which is enterprise mobile management. And UEM is, shoot, I forget, but it's like universal. It, it is basically combining mobile ma mobile protection with traditional Ultra endpoint yeah. management. But all of these stupid acronyms aside, what they all do is you might have a mix of Google phones, Apple phones, and who knows, Chrome OS devices too. What they do is they're a place where you can centrally create a policy. Like you can say... If it's a corporate phone, it has to have a passcode of this length. I want, and I have to make my users have the lock screen turn on. And I want to be able to remotely wipe the device when I want. And I want to be able to change the VPN profiles. It, it allows you to centrally manage the policy. And really this acronym central management will translate whatever your general policy is to what you can do on Android phones versus what you can do to iOS phones and whatnot. Cool. So that, 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 that's one of them. Uh, another thing we do have to consider in this pandemic world is, you know, some companies are allowing people to use personal mobile devices. Maybe your company does not, uh, you know, deploy a mobile device for every one of your users, but you allow them to use their own, bring your own device, their own mobile phone. That's a little more complex, but there's solutions there too, uh, just at a very high general level. There's containerization business applications for mobile devices, which 
allow you to connect to your corporate assets, but as you're, it, it's through a specialized app on the phone uh, that does the connection only through the app. And that app will containerize all the data that's being accessed. It will keep it away from the phone's primary operating or, or primary file system. Uh, it'll put it in this encrypted store separate from that primary system, or at least encrypted within that separate system. So that even if your that personal phone is pwned one day, uh, hopefully the data in this containerization zone is is safe. Another thing that I kind of put similar, this isn't really containerization, but one of the policies we even use as a company sometimes is allow SaaS apps that are corporate controlled. So we might let a personal device use a single sign-on portal, like uh, we have an AuthPoint portal where I can sign on. When I'm signing on to that portal, I'm using corporate credentials. And what that means is IT can remove me at any time. IT has full control of that, that database of users and they can force MFA. So I only get access to all this through MFA. But then no matter where or from what device I access something like Office 365, it forces it through that corporate MFA login uh, because I'm using my corporate email and then everything's in the cloud. So it, it kind of lessens the risk of the amount of stuff that would be on the phone. You have control at least of MFA and secure corporate access. Now you do either need to have policies that say, hey, you can't directly download something from our cloud to your phone and or some SaaS applications do allow you to turn off mechanisms that would get the data out of the cloud. But the point we're trying to make is if you're using SaaS applications, since the data's in the cloud, and the secure, you know, strong authentication from your phone gives you security as you access the cloud, it kind of takes some of the risk off and, and puts less of the data on the device itself. You know, there's all kinds of other little tips we've said before, like ultimately, how do you get malware in the first place? Well, in some cases, if it's NSO group, maybe they exploit a zero day flaw on your iPhone and there's not much you can do about it. But in the most part for Google and other stuff, you know, it's because you installed it yourself from an unsanctioned source. You know, uh, Android devices do allow you to sideload. If you keep your app downloads to legitimate apps in the legitimate Play Store or whatever the Google calls it now, and same for the Apple side of things, you'll be relatively safe. So make sure your users know not to get stuff from weird sources and sideload it on their Androids. Any cool. other tips you can think of, Mark? I, I think you nailed it. And at 14 minutes for the first prediction, we're off to a great start. Oh, shoot. So, <laughs> for the sake of time, let's hop into our next prediction now, which is titled Spear Smishing or SMS Phishing Hammers Messenger Platforms. And this one's continuing a trend that we've been seeing of spear phishing really becoming the new norm for phishing messages. Like, we obviously still get a lot of those shotgun blast style phishing messages of here's your UPS tracking notification without a whole lot in it. But for the most part, like phishing awareness training, anti-spam tools have kind of knocked down those uh, the, the, the success rates of those enough that attackers are really pivoting towards spear phishing instead, where they tailor their messages towards a specific individual or an organization unit within a company, use the things they know about that individual or organization, like who you work for, who you work with, what your mannerisms of communication are. Now, also that this message becomes a lot more believable than when it gets received by the would-be victim. And the bulk of this still comes in over email messages, uh, for the most part, I'd say. 
Um, but we've seen them move to other mediums as well, too, like mobile phones. Uh, you're probably, I guarantee every single person listening here, at least if you're in the US, I guess, has probably received a phone call sometime in the last month saying that your auto warranty is expiring. Or I, I would say even a text message that has some weird BitLie link in it. And that, to be honest, it has to be text in order to really qualify for smishing. But we'll get to how this prediction is really a bit beyond the SMS part two. Exactly. So vishing with those voice calls, smishing covers SMS-based messages, but even that isn't enough these days. And our prediction really boils around, you know, it's it's actually because SMS is in clear text as it's transmitted through carrier networks, as it arrives to your phone, applications on your phone, your phone itself, the operating system, your telco provider, they're all positioned well to have a chance to potentially intercept that and like market as spam. You, if you've got like Actually, I'm assuming other telco providers have it, but like in T-Mobile, they do a pretty decent job of filtering a lot of these smishing messages before they get to my phone. Maybe not so great for spear phishing ones, but at least the bulk of them. Um, that said, a traditional SMS message is not the only way people communicate anymore. And in fact, in some countries, it's not even the most common way people communicate over mobile phones. Like WhatsApp is extremely popular in European and African countries. Uh, you've got Signal as well for people that don't like working with Facebook, Slack teams, all these different communication channels have end-to-end -end encryption in some form or another where your telephone provider, even your phone operating system, usually even the app itself, don't necessarily have visibility into the message, which means whatever's inside there has a higher chance of making it to the endpoint and you reading it. And along with that, there's a whole bunch of additional little metadata that gets included too, uh, you can typically see like contact pictures as well. Uh, then an attacker could spoof in that case too. Basically a whole bunch of different opportunities for the attacker to add credibility to these messages in these alternative enhanced messaging apps that might make this class of SMS phishing or smishing uh, more effective once it reaches the victim. So our predictions around, we're going to see a trend, the trend of moving to other mediums continue to move on and specifically start to hammer some of these alternative messaging platforms. And now what's your takeaway from this? Like it all still boils down to basically the same thing. Like user awareness training for phishing and phishing awareness training is one of your best defenses against this class of cyber attack. Like it is an attack that goes after your users. And so teaching your users how to defend themselves is of the utmost importance. And I, and I think the main thing we want you to focus on is making sure your user realize that WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger are equally, and the other apps Mark mentioned, are equally a place where people are going to try to trick you. I, I think for email, everyone's used to phishing. Your employees know about it and they're looking for it. For text, smishing, the real smishing, our headline may be a little weird because we point out smishing, but that's not technically the only thing we're talking about. That has been around long enough that I actually think users have gotten kind of used to real text, SMS phishing. But seeing it in WhatsApp, hopefully they realize that it, you know, it looks just like text, but it's different. Hopefully they realize that they can be tricked there too. And the reason I think something like, I guess this happens in text too, just because phone OS has put our contact pictures now, but, but in something like Facebook or WhatsApp, 
there's a fake profile attached to it. So like if I want to be the CEO of your company, I can still make a fake WhatsApp account. I can use a picture I grabbed of your CEO from somewhere else. And, and it's just because of the nature of people not maybe expecting it in WhatsApp, but also the fact that there's other contextual stuff that WhatsApp shows even more than an average text message, like a picture of a person. It could be something that causes your, your users to click on it. So just make sure they're aware of Messenger apps specifically. 100%. Uh, moving on to our third prediction now, hackers targeting space hit the headlines. And this is Hacks one of our... in space! <laughs> if exactly. you ever watch The Muppets. Uh, how about you take this one, Corey? Yeah, the, so this is one of the ones that get to our dystopian headline in that uh, obviously this could be a Hail Mary. This may sound like a Hail Mary. What the heck are you guys talking about? There'll be hacks in outer space. That sounds weird as heck. But actually, I think this one is one that has a good chance of hitting if it hasn't already. Uh, and I'll try to do this one quickly because I'm going to recommend watch this video. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's Mark fantastic. and Chris, the head of our PR, did a fantastic job. And all the writers that helped take our predictions and make them funny were, were great. But this boils down to space hacking is not as crazy as you can think. Really, our focus here is satellites. There's much, there is actually more compute infrastructure in space than you might think beyond satellites, like space stations. The rockets themselves have telemetry and radio communications, the telescopes. But really, we're focused on satellite hacking. So there's two things that made us make this prediction. One, there has been an increased focus between uh, governments and cybersecurity researchers on finding vulnerabilities specifically in satellites. In fact, at DEF CON 29, the US government provided some satellites and had a challenge for the hackers there to have a CTF, uh, capture the flag, where they found vulnerabilities in satellites and people did find them. If you think about it, some of the older satellites are using older radio communication technology, maybe less sophisticated encryption. So older satellites might be an easier target. Uh, the second thing is the cost of these type of attacks is, is much lower. You might think it's a satellite. It's miles and miles above our head. We can't even see it. How the heck do you hack it? It's good old-fashioned radio. I mean, when it comes down to it, these communications are well-understood radio. There's smart radios available. For $300 of gear, you have the ability to communicate with the satellite. So it has been proven possible by researchers, and we know governments are focusing their red teams on hacking satellites. The second factor that made us make this pre uh, prediction is the privatization of space. It's not just NASA and governments in going to space now. It's private business. Starlink, you know, I don't want to pimp all of Elon Musk's businesses for him, but I'm going to be doing it here, I guess. He's putting thousands of satellites in space. Starlink plans to have tens of thousands of tiny satellites to create this satellite-based internet. All of that is new attack surface. Now, I'll give you that hopefully Starlink is more modern, so maybe it has more advanced encryption protocols than the old stuff, but it's still new attack surface. And if we know anything about business, they want profit. They do things on the cheap. So whether or not Starlink has good design, secure design, I mean, whether or not they've spent money to make sure it's secure, that's all up to Musk and his company. I, we're about to find out. Same with SpaceX too. They're sending rockets up there. And of course the rockets have real-time telemetry too. So, and of course space station and all the other gear so the privatization, the privatization of space gives us more attack surface there. And potentially because 
why is IoT hardware can be super secure? Why is a lot of IoT not secure? It's because profit-driven companies don't spend the money on it. Now, it will, I guess that will play out. We'll see how these private space companies will do. And the final thing is we do know governments are already active there. There's a recent Wall Street Journal article that actually came out. Our predictions weren't public, but it was long after we made the prediction. And it's talking about how both China, Russia, and the U.S. are actually actively attacking each other's satellites right now. So this really comes down to we are not going to be surprised if there's a headline where gover one government does an active attack that disrupts some other government's space resource. And again, uh, don't have to go into a ton of detail. I, I highly recommend you check out these videos. I think I don't like watching myself, but I think the team made them pretty funny. See, I think I got this prediction all wrong. When I heard hacks in space, I assumed it was just some like wealthy hacker like Kevin Mitnick hopping on Blue Origin or something and getting <laughs> blasted up into the, uh, the atmosphere. But uh, apparently I was wrong. Well, if we have a couple million dollars in, in December of next year, this one isn't looking good. One of us can take a ride and maybe make it true just by doing exactly what you just said. I volunteer as tribute. Uh, so, <laughs> Corey, tell me, what is the practical, practical takeaway for our listeners on how to protect your space satellites from hacking? Man, that's kind of a trick question, right? Uh, <laughs> obviously, space hacks are not going to directly affect most of our audience. This is something that only will affect the governments launching things there and a, a private industry, but a very niche industry. However, there is a practical takeaway for everyone on this. Really, this is IoT. Whether you call it IoT for consumer stuff, OT for office and industrial control stuff, IOMT for medical technology, the point is, just like all our other technology, whether it's in space, whether it's in our cars, whether it's in our sidewalks, our solar panels, we're putting computers freaking everywhere. And we don't even realize sometimes, if you don't know what these devices are, that the issue with IoT is some people don't really realize they put a network-connected computer somewhere. It has all the same vulnerabilities, or it potentially has all the same vulnerabilities as another computer. So for this prediction, nothing you can do about it directly, but use it to think about your IoT. You know, you're probably really good at patching your traditional computers. You probably have software that finds when they're vulnerable and at least tries to keep you on a patching schedule. But often that software doesn't check your hardware. When's the last time you patched your switch? Do you have as good a policy to make sure that you're updating all your office technology that, that is not directly just a computer and software as often? Uh, have you segmented your IoT stuff away from other things so that, yes, you can still use them for the purpose that you want to use them for, but if they get popped, you're, they're not going to get to your corporate network. So yeah, no direct takeaway for the space hack, but as you think about this hack in the context of you, think of all the smart technology that has entered your business organization or industry, and be sure you're protecting that as well. Great tips. Uh, so moving on to the next prediction, this is titled passwordless authentication fails long-term without MFA. And this one's grounded in the news that as of mid-September of this year, we as an industry have officially killed the password. In fact, why are you guys all still using passwords? I thought we already finished it. Um, if you forgot our episode from back then, it's right around mid-September, Microsoft allows you to now delete your Microsoft password from your Microsoft account. And that was kind of the, the, the tipping point of we have now killed the password globally. Now, 
previous to then, you could still log into like your your Windows 10, Windows 11 machines without a password by looking into your webcam and using Windows Hello or potentially a FIDO key. Uh, but this is like Microsoft is a big org and they're the first for the first time a large org like that allowed you to just delete your Microsoft.com yeah, yeah. accounts password. Well, what you're talking about is before this, you could log in with a biometric, but there was a password behind the scenes still ready to be used as a backup. And and this change allows you to go into a mode where there literally will be no password. Yep. So instead of a password now, you still have to use a, or you don't have to, you can log into your account using a single factor though. It's basically just replacing that password now, which we, I guess, collectively have decided passwords are insecure with other potential factors, which I'm going to argue quite a few of them are significantly less secure than a password itself. Like some one, them, in, you particular. Know, one in particular, one in particular, like you can replace with biometrics. So similar to Windows Hello, uh, you can use FIDO tokens, like I mentioned, like a YubiKey style thing. Um, but for example, one of the options they have for replacing the password is just an email sent to your inbox that you click a link and now you're logged into your Microsoft account, which I, that's going backwards, in my opinion. Hey, Mark, nowadays email's all encrypted, right? Yes, exactly. Let Very alone good, a sarcastic point. never compromised the email account. Yeah, I mean, at least previously, like if we run under the very bold, I guess, assumption that you had different passwords for each of your accounts, like someone compromising your email doesn't, well, I guess they could potentially reset your Microsoft password. Then, Anyways, it's still, it's not great. It is not the most ideal way to log into a system. So the biggest problem that we have is that, yes, okay, we may have killed the, fa the password. Hooray. Good for everyone. But all we're doing is just replacing it with other single factors, which does not make it inherently more secure. Um, instead, you know, and sure, removing the password's fine, but we still need to use multi-factor authentication. So more than one factor doesn't mean one of those factors even has to be a password. Like, for example, it could be Windows Hello, so log in with your face and then accept the push notification on your phone. Um, or plug in your YubiKey and accept the push notification or show your face or thumbprint or whatever. The bottom line is you still need MFA going forward. And just killing the password and replacing it with a single other factor is not going to be good enough to improve security around the world. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. By the way, just real quick, I mean, what we're trying to say is you can break almost all those factors. If I were to order them, you already know we think the emailed OTP or link is not a good idea. Biometrics are are relatively strong, but they've been hacked repeatedly. Even, even Face ID in Mac was hacked at least once. Uh, so biometrics can be hacked. So that would be the second secure one. I would say their hardware token, a FIDO token, is probably the strongest of those. Uh, so a YubiKey is probably a nice method. But remember the RSA hack. The, the reason single factors are bad is even the strongest single factor is not perfect. Uh, RSA, while it wasn't literally a FIDO token, it was a hardware token. There's seed data that that token uses, and a vendor somewhere has to store that data. RSA got hacked, that seed data got out, and all those hardware devices were now not secure. So just to Mark's point, a single factor is moving from just one single factor to another. It means we haven't learned any freaking lessons at all with passwords. Because sure, maybe a FIDO token is more secure by nature than a, a password, but it's still hackable. It's still that one dumb factor, which is stupid in my opinion. Uh, we have nothing wrong with passwordless though. Mark says MFA, 
we believe you can actually do very elegant and easy, seamless, passwordless MFA. And I'll let Mark talk about that. Well, I guess before that, I think we just came up with our new marketing slogan of that one dumb factor is stupid. Dude, I, I don't know if I can say it eloquently. It, it should be. I mean, what do we have to say to, to get it? <laughs> Maybe yeah, you have no, to get to I that level. <laughs> and again, yeah, like it doesn't even have to be a password. Like you can use biometrics paired with something secure, like a push notification to your phone. And then it is something you are paired with something you have. That is two separate factors. And that is sufficiently secure to be good enough, you know, unless a nation state comes knocking. And, and it's easy, by the way, because what that really means is you look at your computer and then you get a pop-up on your phone that you say, yes, that's me. That's it. You don't have to type anything at all. It's way easier than passwords. So it's equally passwordless. Yeah, 100%. So moving on now to prediction number five, and this one's an exciting one, uh, increased cyber <laughs> insurance costs. <laughs> Did I drive... detect sarcasm there? <laughs> I'm trying to give our prediction, Corey. <clears throat> Increased cyber insurance costs drive new security mandates. So you need a better trailer voice. I need that scary trailer. In a world where cyber actors pop everyone's computers, increased cyber insurance costs drive new security mandates. I don't no. know if I did. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> Mr. Mr. CSO, tell us why we believe that increased cyber insurance costs are going to drive new security mandates. Well, the, 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 I actually think this prediction can be somewhat good, even though people may not like it. No one likes to be forced to do things. But from a security perspective, this has positives. The negative, though, is your insurance cost is going to go up, has already gone up. So basically, this prediction hinges on a lot of us get cyber security insurance, insurance that helps us pay for the cost of other events, and often optional additional cybersecurity extortion insurance that will... Uh, pay for ransoms or at least recovery of some sort if you ever get hit by ransomware. The thing is, in 2018, actually it was 2017 we re released them. In 2018, we had a prediction said that said people will use cybersecurity insurance more. And simple prediction, and it turned out to be absolutely true. But there was actually a negative in that because we were talking about cybersecurity extortion insurance. And in that prediction, we talked about they're using it more because they're using insurers to pay ransoms. And that's how a lot of companies have been recovering from cyber from ransomware attacks. And I personally, I don't know about Mark and WatchGuard, I personally never liked that insurers paid ransom. That seemed to be their primary way to recover from ransomware, albeit because most companies didn't apparently have backups, so that, that that was one of the only ways they could recover. Our argument during that prediction, though, was... Siri agrees with you, by the way. Hi, Siri. Thank you for that LinkedIn <laughs> message. Uh, sorry, I didn't mute my phone. You'll need to unlock your device first. <laughs> I Thank guess you, I Siri. should not say Siri's name out loud. <laughs> you just did it again. <laughs> anyway, let's <Okay>. continue. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, yes. So my argument back then is insurers were making a mistake by paying. They didn't have long-term actuary data on costs. They were making a short-term business decision. Short-term, the ransom was cheaper than fixing the company's lack of backup. So it seemed like a good bet. Long-term, they didn't. Maybe they realized, but they took the gamble that they're just encouraging the criminal bad practice. As a result, 
according to a report from S&P Global, cyber insurers' loss ratio has increased for the third consecutive year in 2020 by 25 points or 25 additional percent, up to more than 72 percent. And this you know, insurers are never going to pay more. They're going to move that cost to you. And that means premiums for just standalone cybersecurity and poli insurance policies have increased 28.6% in 2020. So the cost of insurance is going up because these insurers have been paying because they're losing profits. They're losing money by paying. The other thing that's gone up is they've realized that the ransomware infects their their uh, clients because they don't have good enough protections. So besides raising your cost of insurance, they're going to be your new governance, regulation, and compliance. You know, it may not be just PCI or HIPAA or other regulations forcing you to secure yourself. It's them. What's happened is insurers, when you go to renew, they're starting to do active vulnerability scans on your network. If they find vulnerable issues, they're going to push you on it. Uh, they're going to ask you about all your remote connections. And if you don't have multi-factor on your remote connections, bang, there's another strike against you. What about your backup policy? Do you have 322 backup? Do you have offline copies? Do you have multiple copies? No. Oh, another red check. And basically, if you fail enough of these mandates, your insurance price will skyrocket or they won't even insure you at all. So the prediction is essentially insurance costs are going to go up and insurers are going to be the new regulators. You know, they will be the ones that are kind of pushing you to adopt the security practices that frankly you should already have. Hopefully all our listeners already do all this stuff so it won't affect you guys as much. But the point is we've learned the tech industry at whole. There's a lot of companies that don't do the basics. So in short, that's the prediction. The, the, there is a silver lining, right? I, I don't think it's bad that people should be doing the basics. But you know, the truth is no one likes to be regulated into this. The best scenario is if you've done this the proper way yourself, taking your time to do it. You've planned it out and prepared for it because that will end up to be the cheapest way. It's all planned for. It's much better than suddenly learning you're going to lose all your cybersecurity insurance unless you quickly change a lot of things. So that is it. Expect insurance to go up. Expect them to have a lot harder security mandates. And uh, hopefully you already are doing these best practices so it's not a big deal. Hopefully. I'm sure our listeners are, but I'm willing to bet that, like you said, there is a sizable portion of the folks out there that are not, unfortunately. Um, so moving on to our sixth and final prediction and our most sassy prediction for the year. And not the, the sass sassy, but an actual it's kind sassy of sassy. It, it's sassy in that it's another analyst acronym. <laughs> All right. In that case, it's fully sassy. Uh, the prediction is titled, and we'll call it Zero Trust. And really, this boils down to, you know, if anyone that's been in cybersecurity at all for any point of their career understands that the privilege of the principle of least privilege is like the basic groundwork for cybersecurity and how you do it. Never give anything more access than it needs in order to accomplish its actual job function. And for the most part, like organizations do a pretty good job at this for like, uh, like external connections inbound stuff, but we've always historically kind of turned a blind eye to internal resources where we're basically, as soon as you're on the company network, you're connected to the VPN, you're at headquarters, you know, you're basically given free ring at a network level at least 
to access whatever resources you need, even if you don't necessarily have the job function for it. Now, some of those resources likely are protected by authentication. Like our, our accounting team doesn't have a password to get into our source code repository. But if we're not using zero trust, they might be able to hit it on a network level, which still leaves it open to cyber attack if their endpoint ends up being breached. Because all it takes then is a vulnerability on that resource or a stolen set Mimi of credentials cats. from a fish, <laughs> mimicats, anything to allow that attacker then to move laterally, elevate their privileges, and basically move with free reign behind a network. And so analysts over the last few years have given it this name of zero trust of basically taking that idea of not trusting anything that we've always done for external clients and bringing it inside now and basically assuming the breach. And our prediction boils around this is the year that organizations will finally start to fully adopt this privilege of this principle of least privilege uh, because it is now called zero trust. And it's Inter internally to probably yes. being the key is, is I, I would say you'll see, especially in our video, we're being cynical security graybeards here because we have been talking about least privilege, but I don't want you to misinterpret. We think zero trust is fantastic. And if there is anything new to it, it's what you know. Mark said at the beginning, we haven't been doing a good job, and by we, I mean the general industry of doing it internally. So I think the true kind of the, the, the sincere real hope of zero trust is turning that in on on people we do trust i do trust my employees but there's really no reason for me to give them anything more than the bare minimum they need to do their job 100 percent. and so what do you do with this well basically we're saying you should absolutely adopt zero trust at this point or at least begin your move towards adopting zero trust it doesn't have to be like an all-at-once thing you can use some of the tools you already have to basically get yourself rolling but at a minimum, like it means using multi-factor authentication so you can know with reasonable certainty that Mark is logging in from his corporate issued laptop from his home over in Seattle. And then based off of that, allow access to exactly the resources that, that user needs while denying by default access to all other resources. And there's little intricacies, like when you do have that level of identity, not just that it's Mark, not just that you have MFA to strongly know it's Mark, but you have time and geo. That's where the other part of zero trust we don't talk about is this kind of continuous uh, monitoring of, okay, I know this is Mark. He's doing this in office hours from his regular places. I'm going to give him the least privilege to things he can do. But also suddenly, if I know this is Mark and he's even gotten past MFA for some reason, but he's suddenly at China using a device I've never seen before at a time I've never seen, you continue to remove privilege based on continuous validation too. So there is there there is uh, you know albeit some other intricacies you can add to this. You're saying trust. there's nuances to this? Yes, there's nuances, but ultimately it's just least privilege uh, uh, done well. <laughs> so I don't care what you call it. Our hope is that this new term does make you adopt it more. And as much as we make fun of this term, don't misinterpret. You should be doing this. Hundred <laughs> percent. So those were our six predictions for the year. Um, I'll say, please reach out to us, by the way, if you want to grade us on how you think our predictions are so far. Uh, also, if you have any prediction, predictions of your own, uh, we can throw them into the next podcast too. But man, we'll see. I mean, I hope we get a better than a D minus, but at the same time, I really hope we don't because, well, you know, some of these would be good wins, I guess. 
but yeah, yeah. There's a there's a few that if they turn out true are good, but for for four of them probably we don't want to see it happen. Hundred <laughs> percent. Anyways. If, if you a, want to uh, recommend us or recommend Mark's video about space hacks for a webby, feel free to do that as well. <laughs> yes. If you want to see all the videos, it's watchguard.com slash predictions. And I think they're also living somewhere on our corporate YouTube channel as well. Definitely check them out. Corey forced me to sit through and watch all of them. And I'll have to admit, they turned out pretty great. So be sure to check them out. And yeah, I don't know. That's a good enough segue to end. So bye. <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics, suggestions for future episode topics, uh, or if you just want to let us know what your predictions are for the upcoming year, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at Secadept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. Hey Siri, is Mark LaLiberty any good? You'll need to unlock your iPad first. Denied. At least it's secure. <laughs> That's great.